Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Well, this morning we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we arrive at a very interesting text. That It's also a very important text. It really shows us the heart of who Jesus is and why he came to earth. And so our text begins with this setting. Verse 17 says, It came to pass on a certain day, as he, that's speaking of Christ, was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Mark's account of this uh, story tells us that this took place in a house in Capernaum. And Luke mentions in this introduction that Pharisees and scribes were there. The place was packed with people, and some of those people were Pharisees and scribes. We talked last week about them. Last week we kind of departed from our typical exposition and really zoomed in on the Pharisees. And if you were here last week with us, you remember that we talked about who they were and a little bit about them because they're going to appear frequently throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. And in particular, these next three stories in Luke uh, is really centered around Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. We saw last week that the Pharisees were a strict religious group and that they were overall very skeptical of Jesus. They refused to accept that he was the Messiah. And here we get our first glimpse into the interaction of Jesus with these religious people. And it centers around the healing and forgiving of a paralyzed man that Luke introduces us to in the next verse. Verse 18 says, Behold, men brought in a bed, or a stretcher, a man that, which was taken with a palsy. That just means he was paralyzed. He couldn't walk. Uh, might have been a paraplegic or quadriplegic. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. Again, Mark's gospel adds an additional detail telling us that there were four men, so presumably one for each corner of the stretcher, something like that, and they carried this man to Jesus seeking healing. But they couldn't get through to Jesus because there was crowds of people, the the house was packed, and they they could not get him through. So eventually they decided if they weren't going to make it through the doorway, then they'd make it through the roof. And we see really the tenacity of these friends in verse 19. It says, when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, They went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. Now that was quite a task. Uh, They had to carry this man, presumably, we don't know exactly where he was from, but they carried him some distance to Jesus that day. And then when they couldn't get him through, they decided to go through the roof and, and they had to take the roof apart. Uh, and of course, roofs back then were not built the same way ours were. It might not have been as hard as it would be to take apart our roof, but... Uh, but they, they took the roof apart. It had to be a big enough hole for this man and his stretcher to fit through. And then they had to find some way of lowering him. Now, maybe they happened to have ropes with them. I don't know. But uh, th- this was quite a task. These people were determined to bring this man to Jesus, and nothing would stop them. By the way, th- this must have been a, a distraction to Jesus. I was thinking about this. Some of you were here a few weeks ago on Wednesday night. Uh, we were sitting right back here, and right in the middle of our Bible study, a, rac- a baby raccoon fell from the attic. Uh, some of you remember that. You want to talk about a distraction. That was, uh, there was no going on with the Bible study at that point. And so we, we had to deal with that. But th- this was quite a distraction. Right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, just imagine sitting around in this room listening to Jesus teach, and all of a sudden you see daylight coming in through the, through the roof, 
and uh, pieces of debris falling, and then this guy is lowered in the middle. I mean, what a, an incredible uh, distraction this would have been. Certainly, uh, this interruption would have captured everyone's attention. Jesus couldn't just ignore this, uh, this type of event. Now, I think many people, when they talk about this text, focus too much attention on the four men. At least that's been my experience. When people talk about this text, we tend to get really glued in on these four guys and uh, their resolve to bring this man to Jesus. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Certainly, these were great friends. Uh, I mean, imagine being, being a paralyzed man and having four friends that loved you so much that they would walk and carry you to Jesus. And then even when there was a, a barrier and, a, and a, a problem there, they would, they would go up on the roof and tear it apart just to get you healed. These men certainly loved their friend. And I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about that. I'm not saying we shouldn't learn from that example. Uh, I think we can uh, use these men as a model for our evangelism. We try to bring people to Christ. We ought to be creative in our evangelism. We ought to not let... Uh, a simple barrier get in the way. If somebody says no the first time, go back and talk to them. Keep pressing. Don't, don't be obnoxious about it. Uh, but keep having a heart for people and wanting to bring them to Christ. I think that's fine. And so I, I want to spend basically those 30 seconds talking about how great these friends were and then move on to the really important part because I think the important part of this text is Jesus and who he is and what this text reveals about him. I think we'll see that as we go on. After these men have lowered the paralyzed man on his stretcher down to Jesus, he responds to this action in verse 20 in a very surprising way. Verse 20 says, When he saw their faith, notice their faith, that's plural, we'll talk about that in a minute, but he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. So Jesus is moved by the faith of the men who carried the paralytic as well as the, man, the paralyzed man himself. They were all Obviously, they, they trusted that Jesus could heal him. And when Jesus saw their resolve to bring this man to him, trusting that Jesus could heal his affliction, Jesus declares to this man that his sins are forgiven. And the Greek verb here is in the, pre, uh, the perfect tense, which means permanently forgiven. Uh, this is a, a lifelong forgiveness. Imagine being this man coming to Christ and being told by Jesus, your sins are forever forgiven. Imagine the assurance that this man had. Now, why would Jesus say this? Uh, seems like an unnecessary part of the story. This story, if you read it in the context of the rest of the book of Luke, it seems like a setup, right? They bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. Jesus is going to say, uh, be healed, and then he's going to get up and walk, and everybody's going to be happy. Why does Jesus say, your sins are forgiven you? That seems to be an odd uh, interruption in the normal course of this miracle. Jesus seems to be purposefully pressing the issue of who he was. He knows that this statement will get a reaction from the religious leaders there, and he wants that conversation to take place in order to reveal something about who he is and what he came to do. Verse 21, after declaring the man's sins to be forgiven, the scribes and Pharisees respond this way. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees understood that the only person who can forgive sins is the one against whom all sin is committed. Uh, in other words, the way of thinking about this, uh, imagine if Malachi stole Marvin's Jeep. Now, Marvin would be very upset about that because Marvin loves his Jeep. But if, if Malachi stole Marvin's Jeep, I couldn't tell Malachi, it's okay, you're forgiven. Because <laughs> it's not my Jeep. He didn't commit the offense against me. The only person who could forgive Malachi would be Brother Marvin. He's the one who would decide whether or not to press charges. 
But the Bible teaches us that all our sins are offenses against God. We see this over and over in the Old Testament and New. We see people like Joseph, uh, David, many other examples where, where they sin against another person, and yet they say that I've sinned against God, because all sin is an offense against a holy God. Therefore, only God can forgive sins. The Pharisees were right. Only God can forgive sins. Only the person sinned against has the ability and authority to pronounce a pardon. They were right. They were also correct in saying that it would be blasphemy for any man to claim the ability and authority to forgive sins. That would be blasphemy unless the man was God. Now we have the answer as to why Jesus said your sins are forgiven instead of just saying be healed. By raising the issue, Jesus is forcing them to come to a conclusion about who he is. He is either God in the flesh or he is a blasphemer. Jesus responds in verse 22, says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, by the way, that should have been an, a, a clue for these people. If this guy can read your thoughts, uh, maybe he is God. Continuing on, he answering said unto them, what reason ye in your hearts? Whether is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, rise up and walk? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Those two sentences are equally easy to say and equally impossible to do. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, I think one of them is easier to say in that it's not able to be disproven. If Jesus says your sins are forgiven, nobody knows if that's really happened. There's no way of knowing if the person's sins are forgiven or not. But if Jesus says rise up and walk to a paralyzed man, you're going to know right away whether or not he has the power to say that. It'll be immediately obvious if the miracle has happened or not. So it's easier to say the thing that no one can dispute. Saying rise up and walk would demand immediate proof. So in that sense, it's the harder of the two statements. In the next verse, Jesus heals the man in order to outwardly prove that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. So follow the logic here. He's saying, it'd be a whole lot easier for me to just say your sins be forgiven. You don't even know if I've done that or not. If I say be healed, you're going to know right away. There's going to be either proof or disproof as to whether or not that miracle has happened. Therefore, if I can do the miracle that you can see, you should trust that I can do the miracle that you can't see. Verse 24, Jesus continues, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. So that's the reason he's going to heal him. So that you can know that the Son of Man can forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. This man was instantaneously and perfectly healed. He gets up and he walks home, carrying the stretcher that carried him moments before. And this man's healing was a demonstration of who Jesus was, and the fact that he has the authority and ability to forgive sins. The crowd of people who saw this miracle take place were amazed and they glorified God and they were filled with fear. And that's an appropriate response to the demonstration they had just seen of Jesus' divine power. Verse 26 gives us that synopsis. They were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. This account answers three very important questions that are really at the core of, of Jesus' ministry. This is why Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, instead of just healing him. That wouldn't have been controversial. Uh, he inserted that, that controversial statement to try and shed light on who he was. 
He wanted them not just to see a paralyzed man be healed, but to see past that to who this healer truly was and what more he had to offer than just physical restoration. And the first thing Jesus wanted to make clear was who he was. Jesus was the Son of Man. He uses that title in verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. A lot of people have ideas about what this means. Some have just kind of gone with a simple assumption that Son of God means he's God. Son of Man means he's a human. I don't think that's quite right. This term comes from Daniel 7, where Daniel gives a vision of Uh, something that God had revealed to him. Verse 9 of Daniel 7 says, I beheld till the thrones, notice plural thrones, were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit. So thrones are are put down on the earth, uh, and the ancient of days sits on one of the thrones, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Now, what stands out in this verse is that there's multiple thrones, and the Ancient of Days sits on one of them. Well, who's going to sit on the other throne? Uh, Who would have the authority, and who would be worthy enough to sit on a throne next to the Ancient of Days? Verse 13 gives us this answer. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So there's thrones set up, the Ancient of Days sits on one, and the Son of Man comes in the clouds of heaven to sit next to him on the throne. And he's given a kingdom, he's given dominion. Everybody is supposed to serve him and worship him. And Jesus is claiming here to be the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. He's saying, I am the Son of Man. He's claiming equality with the Father. He's telling them, in essence, I am God become a human. That's what the term Son of Man implies. The deity of Christ is really the core of this particular text. And it's a doctrine that's been attacked throughout the 2,000 years since Jesus walked on the earth. It's denied even today by, by many liberal theologians. Some have asserted that Jesus was simply a good man, a good teacher, or even a prophet, but that he wasn't God. Uh, many religions, if you talk to a Jew or if you talk to a Muslim, many times their main sticking point with Christianity is they'll say, yes, Jesus was a good teacher, uh, but he wasn't God. He never even claimed to be God. They'll say things like that. But such statements are ludicrous in light of clear passages in the New Testament where Jesus does make that claim explicitly. And of course, it's, it's ironic Uh, to me, especially that Jews deny this, considering the Jews killed Jesus for this. Uh, Jesus was crucified for the sin of blasphemy. The the Jews back then understood this man was claiming to be God, and that's why they killed him. That's why they crucified him. And our text today perfectly demonstrates that you have to make a choice about who Jesus is. Either he is God become a human, or he is a blasphemer, because he did claim to be God. So the first important reality Jesus was making clear by this conversation was his identity as the Son of Man, God in a human body. The second reality Jesus was making clear was his mission. Jesus did not come to heal people physically, but to forgive their sins. Jesus healed people as a demonstration of his divine power and as a result of his compassion that he felt for others, but that was not his main mission on earth. He wasn't here to simply heal a few people's physical problems so they lived a little longer or more comfortably. He was here to forgive man's sins. 
Jesus could have just said to the man in our text, be healed and send him on his way. Everybody would have been happy with that. But Jesus purposefully waits to heal him and instead says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus did not want people to focus so much on the physical healings and the miracles of Jesus that they missed his ultimate purpose. Jesus came to forgive sinners. The miracles were simply a way of revealing who Jesus was and that he had authority and that he was the Son of God. This text makes that clear. The fact that the man could now walk was great, but a far more significant miracle was that the man was forgiven. And this is the theme for the book of Luke. We talked about this several months ago when we started our study in Luke. Luke 19.10 is really the theme verse. It says, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was why Jesus came. He came to save sinners, to show them how they could be forgiven. And this text in Luke 5 serves as a reminder to Theophilus, the original reader of this book, and to us as modern readers of Luke's gospel, that as we read about the life of Jesus and all that he did, we shouldn't get so caught up in the good things Jesus did and the miracles he performed that we miss the central theme of the gospels, that Jesus is God, come to earth for the purpose of saving lost humanity. The mission of Jesus is to save sinners, to forgive mankind of their sins. And this should be our mission as well. This is a good reminder for us as the church. Uh, it's good to do good works. It's good to help the poor. It's, it's good to uh, help with physical things whenever, you know, Christians go around the world and they, they set up orphanages and things. That's wonderful. Hospitals, great. Do that. Do those things. We ought to have compassion for others. But don't let that distract from the main mission. Uh, the main thing that Christians have to offer the world is not another loaf of bread. Again, I'm not downplaying that as though we shouldn't do that. But the main mission, the main thing that we have to give people is the gospel, how they can have their sins forgiven. We are to carry on the task of Jesus. Jesus healed people. Jesus did all sorts of great things for people. But that wasn't his main mission. His main mission was to forgive sins. And we ought to do those things as well. That's the central message of Christianity, and it should be our mission to advance the mission of Jesus in saving the lost. So first, our text answers the question, who is Jesus? He is God. He is God become human. Second, our text answers the questions, why did Jesus come? Why did the Son of Man come to earth? And we know that clearly from Luke says he came to save the lost. He came to forgive sinners. The final reality that this text reveals is how we can be forgiven. And this is found in verse 20. It says, when he saw their faith, he said unto him, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Forgiveness comes only through faith in Christ. And these men's faith was made evident by their actions. They were willing, it's interesting, it says he saw their faith. Well, how do you see faith? I think Jesus saw their actions. He saw the fact that they were willing to tear apart a roof to get this man to Jesus because they trusted. They had full confidence that if we can just get this man to Jesus, he can heal him. They were depending on Christ. And that faith is essential to receiving forgiveness. But faith is only as good as the object of faith. Have you ever had faith in something that didn't work out the way that it was supposed to? Have you ever had faith in someone that then let you down? Uh, faith is trust, and it's, it's dependence. We must place our trust in Christ to be forgiven. If your faith is resting this morning on religion or good works or anything else, that is misplaced faith, and it won't save you. I remember when I was a boy, I, I liked to climb trees a lot. Uh, maybe some of you were like that when I was a boy. Anything dangerous or stupid, that's what I like to do. And so I like to climb trees as high as I could until the branches got real thin. And, uh, and sometimes if the trees, 
in, in our backyard, we had kind of a wooded area, and some of the trees were close enough to where I could jump from one to the other. I just, I don't know why, what the compulsion was to do that. But on one particular day, I was climbing a tree in the backyard, and I got up a good distance up into the tree when I heard a terrible sound. It was the sound of the tree cracking under my weight. The tree apparently was dead or something, and it, it, uh, it snapped. And I fell a, a pretty good distance. I didn't break any bones or anything. I was fine, bruised up a little bit and bleeding some, but I was okay, or so I thought. Uh, I found out later that I had landed in poison ivy or poison oak, one of the two. And because I had so many cuts on my face from the you know, branches scraping me, it got right into my blood. And uh, basically, I had to go to the hospital. They gave me some drugs. And for the next few days, I looked like a chipmunk because my cheeks were all swollen up. But that's a good example of misplaced faith. I had been trusting in a tree that let me down, literally. And if you are trusting this morning in good works or the fact that you go to church or anything like that to grant you forgiveness for your sin, that's like climbing a dead tree. When you stand before God, that tree will snap under you and you will fall into eternal judgment. Good works can't make up for sins committed against God. Back to our illustration from earlier. If Malachi steals Marvin's Jeep, and then he says, don't worry, Marvin, I'm going to mow your lawn for the next month. Well, that doesn't really make up for the fact that he stole Marvin's Jeep. Maybe a a better example, if somebody's on trial for murder, they can't just claim, well, for 30 years, I've been a good law-abiding citizen. I've given to charity. I've done all these things. Well, that's all irrelevant if you've committed murder. You will be sentenced. We've sinned against a holy God, and we will be judged for that sin, regardless of any good things we try to do to make up for it. We, we can't do enough good works to balance out the sins we've committed. What we need is mercy. We need our judge to pardon us, and Jesus is our judge. Again, Daniel 7 shows us that the Son of Man is seated on the throne. The books are open, and he stands in judgment. That is what Jesus will do. He'll, he'll judge sinners. But today he offers you a pardon. You can be completely forgiven, permanently forgiven, just like that man, for all your sin. The one against whom you've sinned came to earth. He took a human body and he died on a cross to pay your debt. And he offers you forgiveness. But you must place your faith in Jesus to save you. So our text this morning answers really the three most important questions in the universe. Who is Jesus? He is God become human. Why did he come? So that we could be forgiven. Son of Man came to save the lost from the judgment of God against sinners like us. And then number three, how can we experience this forgiveness? How can we be pardoned? By faith in Christ. came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed, a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. The scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, 
And they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to experience the same forgiveness that this man did. If there's anyone in this room that doesn't know for sure that their sins have been forgiven, I pray that they would right now place their faith on you, that they would trust in you alone to save them. We know from Scripture our good works are as filthy rags before you. We can't earn salvation on our own. We must have forgiveness. We must have mercy. For those of us who have experienced your grace this morning, those of us who have been forgiven, I ask that you would once again uh, stir in our hearts a wonder and an awe for you. Help us all this morning as we leave this church to, to have the same attitude as the folks that day, to be glorifying you in amazement and fear and, and wonder that you would forgive sinners like us. And then help us, God, to take this message of forgiveness, to take this message of salvation that is offered through Jesus, and to spread it all around us, to tell everybody we can about the forgiveness of God. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.